This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. As the accelerated search for a vaccine against the coronavirus continues around the world, what can we learn from the past? Researchers across the globe are racing to develop a vaccine for COVID-19, trying to achieve in 18 months what's previously taken a decade or more. Australian scientists have reached a critical milestone in the search for a vaccine. Preclinical trials are being done at the CSIRO's High Containment Biosecurity Facility in Victoria. What we've been able to do since January to now normally takes a year or so. So to give you an idea of the haste and speed we're working on, Joe, this is the enormity of the task we face. A post-coronavirus world depends on a COVID-19 vaccine. Without it, there's no return to a pre-pandemic normal. In this rear vision, we'll look at the history of vaccines. What can they tell us about the future? A typical vaccine involves either a killed version of a pathogen or a weakened version of it to trick the body into mounting a defence that may, in effect, generate a long-lasting immunity to the disease itself. Dr Andrew Artenstein is the author of Vaccines, a Biography. A vaccine should be able to rev up the immune system in a human being to produce a protein or some other chemical that protects them against a certain virus or bacteria. So it's a way that we are able to induce an immune response artificially, as it were. The natural way would be to have the natural infection, have your body produce an immune response that is then protective against future infections caused by the same bug. With a vaccine, you do it artificially, and the level of immunity is sometimes tricky and the duration of the immunity is tricky and they're not all the same. We have vaccines for both viruses and bacteria. Professor Ian Fraser, who developed the vaccine that protects against cervical cancer, says they work best on viruses. Vaccines are best designed to work against viruses. We don't have good vaccines against bacterial infection. We have vaccines against the toxins that bacteria produce, but not against the bacteria themselves. Basically, because our immune system is better placed to deal with virus infections, and therefore the sort of immunity that's induced by a vaccine will work best against viruses. Bacteria have quite a range of defences against the immune system, and they are therefore more difficult to vaccinate against. Vaccines vary in terms of their effectiveness. Our best vaccines are 100% effective. For example, the measles vaccine, the only people that don't get benefit from measles vaccines are people who have no immune system for one reason or another. If they're born without an immune system, they can't respond to a vaccine. But the best vaccines give us 100% of protection. There are much less good ones like the flu vaccine, which at best might be said to give us about 50% protection. They vary in their effectiveness and they also vary in their durability. So there are two different issues. There are actually three things. When we think about a vaccine, we think about three elements. Safety, if you're gonna give something to a human being, it has to be as safe as possible. And obviously that's relative to the risk of whatever infection you're talking about. But there's safety, there's effectiveness, which is actually how good job it does in producing immune protection. So an immune response which protects you against subsequent infection. That's the effectiveness of a vaccine. And then there is the durability, which is how long that effectiveness lasts. So if it's safe 
and it's effective, then you have to figure out how durable it is. And that's how you decide how frequently you need to re-vaccinate someone. Most of us get our first vaccinations as babies, and many of them provide protection from infectious diseases for life. Professor Michael Kinch is the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. In general, a good vaccine will last a lifetime, but there are some exceptions. The pertussis component, the whooping cough component of the DPT vaccine, the immunity for that only lasts for a few years. And that was unfortunately an intentional mistake. And what I mean by an intentional mistake was that I'm in my mid-50s. And the DPT shot I received was a powerful vaccine. I received a few doses as a child, and I still have immunity to it. However, my children received a watered-down version, a weaker version of the pertussis component. And they're only protected for a few years at a time. And the reason for that was that there was a scare, particularly in Japan, the United Kingdom, and some parts of the United States, that the pertussis component, and this is now the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, that that pertussis part of the vaccine was causing fever in children that were being given the vaccine. And fever is oftentimes a normal side effect of vaccines, but the fever caused some people, and especially in the press, to overreact a bit. And they demanded that the vaccine basically be watered down. And that started in Japan and basically spread from there. And the consequence of that is that now pretty much all of us around the world that get the DPT shot, that pertussis vaccine, it doesn't last as long as most vaccines would be expected to. What about vaccines and side effects? It's pretty rare. And the reason why it's so rare is that there is so much attention to focusing upon the safety when developing a vaccine. And the simple reason for that is that a primary feature that distinguishes a vaccine from a therapeutic, a conventional medicine, is that you are treating a non-diseased, a quote-unquote normal individual, in the hopes of preventing a future disease that they may or may not end up getting. And the consequence of that is that there is a very low tolerance for side effects that might occur. Now, what ends up happening is that the immune system, when it's stimulated, will basically convey the same sorts of symptoms that you get if you have a cold or a very, very mild form of influenza, namely a fever, some lethargy, and that usually only lasts for a day or two. That is usually pretty much the extent of what you end up seeing with vaccine toxicities. Occasionally, when you have a rushed vaccine, and we saw an example of that in the mid-1970s when we had a suspected outbreak of pandemic influenza, where a vaccine was rushed out and a decision was made by President Ford in the United States to immunize all Americans. And in that case, there was a very rare condition called Guillaume-Barre. It was understood that this side effect would happen in some small percentage of people, but a decision was made at quite literally the highest level, at the level of the president, to proceed under the assumption that if this were indeed, for example, a repeat of the 1918 flu, it's much better to have a small percent of the population suffering the side effect than a large percent of the population potentially dying from a pandemic flu. Now, the sad part was, number one, the anticipated people did get 
that side effect. And number two, which is the truly tragic part, we didn't end up having a really bad pandemic. So those sacrifices were sadly not necessary. Generally, by the time that a vaccine becomes widely used, it is safe enough and it's effective enough to be quite predictable. We do have some occasional problems with new vaccines that enter the market. Probably the most famous example, at least in the United States of that, was the Lyme disease vaccine, which not only proved to be not all that terribly effective, but also was linked with potential toxicities. And that was subsequently withdrawn from the market a few years after it was introduced. In the first half of the 20th century, much of the research on vaccine development was carried out by the military. Arthur Allen is the author of Vaccine, the controversial story of medicine's greatest lifesaver. One thing that's very interesting about the development of vaccines, and it's true today with the COVID vaccine, is that at least in the last hundred years or so, the development of vaccines has had something to do with military readiness. After the last great pandemic that everyone is aware of, although there have been others, which was the 1918-19 flu pandemic, the U.S. military and other militaries around the world saw infectious disease as a threat to their forces. But what's interesting is that eventually the technology that's developed in a very concentrated way for the military ends up leading to benefits for the rest of us. And during World War One, there was an attempt to make a flu vaccine, which was a total failure. They didn't know what flu was. During World War Two, there were additional efforts to make a flu vaccine. It was really the, a period when they were just starting to understand that there are these things called viruses and that they weren't the same as bacteria, but they were very important to disease. And the laboratories from around the United States were enlisted to make vaccines against viral diseases, including Japanese encephalitis and some rather obscure diseases like typhus, although that's a bacterial disease. And the knowledge that was gained through these efforts didn't always lead to immediate success. There were some huge disasters, such as the U.S. development of a yellow fever vaccine during World War II. The vaccine was contaminated with samples of blood that were taken from Red Cross officials in Baltimore that were contaminated with hepatitis B. And about 10% of the soldiers who were vaccinated against yellow fever actually got hepatitis B and were flat on their butts for weeks at a time. There were also some deaths. Perhaps the most important vaccine to emerge from this research that was heavily funded by the military in World War II were the polio vaccines. And there were a number of them being developed after World War II. There was really a race to see who was going to succeed first. The story of polio virus, it was an epidemic that had intermittently plagued humans for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It had been around a long time and it would wax and wane. And so it, it really was a huge public health concern. Jennifer Shu is an infectious diseases specialist. And, you know, in the early 1900s, when drinking water supplies were getting safer, that was a huge public health achievement. And diseases like typhoid fever, diphtheria, tuberculosis with increased sanitary living conditions, increased safety of drinking water, 
all these other diseases were declining, whereas polio was not, and it remained a huge public health concern. So in the 1950s, when electron microscopy was developed, and so they could actually identify the polio virus, they could actually visualize it. It was around the same time that cell culture techniques were developed as part of vaccine science. And so these things kind of converged. We had a huge interest from a public health standpoint. This was a scary infection. In the 1950s, people didn't want to let their kids go to the pool in the summertime because of the risk of polio. So there was a huge interest from a public health standpoint and also a parallel development of the technologies needed to develop a polio virus vaccine. Polio was never as prevalent a disease as coronaviruses. The numbers were always much smaller. The difference is polio was very scary because every once in a while, not very often, but rarely when it affected especially children, it caused paralysis. And most people who had polio had either mild symptoms or no symptoms, but they contracted the disease because it's a viral infection that was spread through the fecal-oral route, and children pass that kind of virus along. But occasionally, a child would have a bad outcome, and that scared adults, as you might imagine. It was extraordinarily scary. It seemed to be a random event. It didn't discriminate socioeconomically, so affluent children could become paralyzed, just like poor children. In fact, as you know, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was paralyzed from polio, and his family was extraordinarily affluent. So it wasn't a disease of one class or another. And just like coronavirus, by the way, I should tell you, the government at the time tried to blame, in the 1916 outbreak, tried to blame polio on immigrants to the United States. But with polio, people had been studying it for two decades. The problem was back then, viruses were new. No one understood them. They had just been discovered less than 20 years before that in the late 19th century. And they didn't know exactly what caused polio, and they couldn't grow it in the laboratory. And until you could grow something in the laboratory, it was difficult to do any kind of experiments with it. The first thing that happened was the March of Dimes was formed, which was a non-governmental philanthropic foundation. March of Dimes became the marketing vehicle that some really brilliant business people at the time with good hearts and politicians used to sell the public the idea that this was an awful disease that needed to be eradicated from the face of the United States of the earth through a vaccine. A lot of funding poured in, the government contributed, and pretty soon they were able to sponsor some grants for scientists to try to figure out what different types of polio there were, because they needed to figure out how many different serotypes, that is types of the virus, cause polio. And they had a competition, and one of the people in the competition, Jonas Stock, who won a grant, and as you know, he's the one who ultimately was the first to announce an effective vaccine against polio. Dr. Jonas Salk, discoverer of the first successful vaccine against infantile paralysis, gives the first official reports to a waiting world at the University of Michigan. Dr. Salk's own child was one of the two million children involved in tests of his vaccine. Tests which have ended for all time the threat of one of the world's most vicious diseases. The key event in polio came in the late 1940s when three scientists at Harvard were able to actually culture the virus in tissue culture in the laboratory. 
and that took years of advances in laboratory methods. But when they were able to culture the virus, then you can grow enough virus to actually inject it into animals and start to figure out the immune response. And that's what they were able to do. And five years after that, 1954, so only five years from the time they cultured the virus, the first positive results of a vaccine were announced. And that was Jonas Salk's killed polio vaccine, which was injected. The reason I bring this up is it was five years from the time they were able to grow the virus, but they've been working on polio for decades. So that wasn't five years to a vaccine. That was two decades of work that underpinned a vaccine before they could even get to the point where they could test it in humans in a broad scale enough to announce uh, and see that it was safe and effective. And even then, as you probably know, Carrie, there was an incident where some of the vaccine was contaminated and caused polio in some of the recipients because it was contaminated with live polio. So vaccines take a lot of effort to prove that they're safe, a lot of care in the manufacture, and then a lot of effort to show they're effective. And only then can they be safely given to humans because the last thing you want to do is cause harm to somebody. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. As scientists in labs around the world rush to find a vaccine for the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, we're looking at the past to see how successful they might be. Vaccines have to be shown to be safe and effective, and the testing process for ensuring that usually takes years, if not decades. In a normal situation, the process is to identify the parts of the thing you want to target. And I purposely use the word thing because historically it has been bacteria and viruses, but it's expanded more recently, for example, to cancer cells. And you try to identify what are the portions of that disease-bearing thing that can be basically used to train the immune system to target it. What ends up happening is once you identify those areas, and then this is a really crucial part to avoid toxicity, is that you need to undergo a series of both clinical experiences as well as preclinical experiences to make sure that you don't have an unanticipated side effect. Because once you wind up the immune system, you really get it to become vigorous and active, you don't want it to unintentionally have collateral damage. In the same way that a bullet or a bombshell can go astray and and target your own troops, you don't want that same thing to happen with a vaccine for two reasons. One is the immune system is incredibly powerful. And two is that immunity can last for, as we talked about, decades or perhaps even a lifetime. And the last thing that a vaccinologist wants to do is to create a product that causes, for example, an autoimmune disease. After the outbreak of an earlier coronavirus, the first version of SARS in 2002, scientists began research on a vaccine. Work was abandoned when some animals given the experimental vaccines became sicker when infected with SARS than unvaccinated animals. We were very fortunate with SARS that the infection died out before we actually needed a vaccine, partly because it didn't spread so rapidly out of China as it might have done. But the vaccines that were under development at the time 
and there was one being developed in Australia as well, got a fair distance down the track and then it was seen that the vaccine could induce this problem that when you then were exposed to the virus, the virus infection was more severe as a result of the prior vaccination in a small number of animals. And that kind of stopped the enthusiasm for developing a vaccine of that sort. We have to be sure that's not going to happen with any vaccine against uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 because of that observation with another coronavirus that there was a problem like that. There is not a proven vaccine for SARS. As you know, the current coronavirus that we're wrestling with is actually a distant cousin of the SARS virus. So it's called SARS-CoV-2. It did stimulate uh, drug research, which is why we have some therapies now that are being used pretty quickly in COVID because a lot of the work was already done 15 years ago, some of the basic science work. That's why we have sort of libraries of possible candidates to try. Remdesivir is a good example of that. But it did give a jumpstart in some of the vaccine science, the background work. And so some of those products and some of the concepts and the pharmaceutical companies that were involved back then have been able to sort of dust off some of the models and ideas and some of the products and begin to compare them against the current genetic sequence of this virus, which is different but related. The other things you need to remember is it's 2020. So Compared to 1940, when they were working on trying to learn about polio virus in the laboratory, our technology and science is much more advanced. It's been 80 years of advances. A lot of technology that never existed, we have now. A lot of what we've learned about viral infections was learned from the last 40 years of HIV, actually. HIV was such an overwhelming and widely distributed pandemic itself. And it's still going on 40 years after it was first reported in 1981. It has not been solved, but it's become a chronic illness rather than a death sentence for most people. And we've learned a tremendous amount about diagnostic tests, serology and antigen tests and PCR, all of which has served us well with COVID. We've also learned a lot about drugs and we've learned a lot about antiviral drugs, that is, which we knew little about. 40 years ago. And we've learned a lot about vaccines, even though we haven't had success with HIV, there's been a lot of science. And a lot of that is being brought to bear. The other two factors in COVID, the reason I'm a little more optimistic that it may not take seven years, if we're lucky, is because there's a tremendous amount of focus right now around the world, some great laboratories doing great science that are competing with each other, frankly, for primacy. And that's a good thing when it comes to science. At the moment, there are multiple laboratories worldwide. It said there are over 200 laboratories developing vaccines using all of the different technologies that we have at our disposal at the moment. Live virus, killed virus, bits of virus, DNA, RNA and different ways of delivering these into the body because we don't know what's the right one to use at the moment so that each of the laboratories are going about this in their own way. But the results are being widely shared, of course, and people will concentrate on ones which look effective. The biggest check in the whole process at the moment is getting adequate safety data, first of all, in animals and then in humans. And the problem, of course, with that in countries where vaccines could be developed is that there aren't actually very many new cases of COVID-19 occurring 
a large part of the population who will be exposed to the virus has already been exposed. So that means that the vaccine trials have to be done in countries where the infection is still rapidly spreading. And that creates another set of problems in terms of getting ethical approval and demonstrating safety. If you look historically, most of the effective vaccines, or at least more than half of the effective vaccines have been killed pathogen, the killed virus or the killed bacterium. And that's an approach that most of the Chinese companies or or many of the Chinese vaccines are taking. And it's a pretty smart approach. In Europe and Australia and the United States, we're emphasizing these, what I refer to as whiz-bang technologies, to deliver these very fancy vaccine candidates. And I can't help but wonder whether we might be being too smart by half, meaning that potentially they aren't going to work as well as the tried and true methodologies that are being done by the Chinese. So I would argue we need to have even greater international cooperation, especially working with the Chinese companies and hospitals and physicians and scientists, because they're going to be gathering very valuable data that's simply not going to happen in the countries of Europe, Australia and the United States. Human trials are about to start in Britain on a coronavirus vaccine. Currently, there are more than 60 vaccines in development, with 20 countries working on trials. Australia is among them, along with scientists from Israel to Denmark, Canada to India. The vaccine, when it was given to these ferrets, there were no adverse reactions to the vaccine. So we know that the vaccine is at least safe. These vaccines that are going into people now, there's still much more development in many more people before we're actually at the point that the vaccine is ready. Right now, we don't even know if a vaccine to protect us against the coronavirus is even possible. But as human trials get underway, how optimistic should we be about the much-publicised 12- to 18-month time frame for a COVID vaccine? If we knew what was going to be the right vaccine, the big problem then starts of manufacturing sufficient vaccine to be used on a global basis. Uh, We have limited capacity in Australia to make vaccines, and that would be true in most countries in the world. Most of the capacity we have for making vaccines at the moment is being used to make the conventional vaccines that we use all the time, so that new plant will have to be built to make these vaccines, and that might take quite a period of time, 6 to 12 months is commonly quoted as the time that you need to build from scratch a system to make the vaccine and then test that system to make sure that it's reliable. But it can take even longer than that if manufacture is difficult. And some of these new technologies that we have are relatively easy to make in small scale, but will be quite hard to scale up to large scale manufacture. So I would reckon that even if we had a vaccine today that we knew was going to be the right one, it would be a minimum of a year before we had a significant amount of vaccine available to vaccinate people. We're talking about now immunizing 7.5 billion people. And from a simple logistics standpoint, forget the vaccine itself. Do we have 7.5 billion vials? Do we have 7.5 billion rubber stoppers and all the other equipment that's needed to just move this vaccine around? And there's a logistics challenge that makes that 18-month time frame seem very optimistic. Even if today we had those seven and a half billion vials full of vaccine and ready to go, it takes a lot of coordination 
to immunise 7.5 billion people. Dr Michael Kinch, head of the Centre for Research Innovation in Biotechnology at Washington University in St Louis. Thanks to him and my other guests, Professor Ian Fraser from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland, Professor Andrew Artenstein, Regional Executive Dean of the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Dr Jennifer Hsu, an Infectious Diseases Specialist in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Andrew Allen, author of Vaccine, the Controversial Story of Medicine's Greatest Lifesaver. If you'd like to know more about the vaccines that are being trialled, there's a fantastic explainer put together by the ABC Story Lab. You'll find it by searching ABC Story Lab and The Virus and the Vaccine. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. I'm Kerry Phillips. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.